The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. Welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. Each episode, our special guest brings up a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our guest is Brandon Cronenberg. He is the writer and director of the 2012 film Antiviral, and his latest film, Possessor Uncut, is now out in theaters and drive-ins. Listeners, this is one of our favorite films of this year, and we cannot wait for you to see it. Welcome to the show, Brandon. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, of We're course. super excited. This this movie, like uh, Mary Beth was texting me while she was watching it, and it was just a bunch of like, "What the fuck?" Because it's it's so it's so mind blowing. I I love it so much. I texted Terry. I was like, "I can't move. Like, what do I do now after watching this movie?" So thank you for that experience that I've rarely had before. Well, thank you. That's that's incredibly kind of you. So, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what Possessor is about? Uh, so Possessor is about uh, essentially an assassin, uh, Tazia Voss, who works for a corporation, um, but she assassinates people by essentially possessing them, possessing their bodies through this, this science fiction device. So uh, a host is abducted, implanted with this brain implant. Uh, she possesses the host body, and then the host is someone sort of close to the target. Um, who then commits the assassination and is killed. And so it, it's a kind of perfect crime because it seems like the killer has died. Uh, and so it's not traceable to the corporation. So what an amazing idea. Can you tell us how you came up with the story and what you were interested in exploring with Possessor? Sure. I mean, honestly, the, I began writing during the uh, the press tour for my first film, Antiviral. Mm, and okay. I, I think I think the, the start of the, the, the film essentially came from a somewhat trivial personal place. Um, when, you, when you're when you traveling with a film for the first time, it's a very strange experience because mm. you are 
in a sense, inventing this public persona uh, mm. as you go, oh, either yeah. consciously or, or unconsciously, and you're performing a, 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 a version of another uh, another version of yourself. So this mm. kind of media self that then very weirdly goes off and has its own life without you online. And so between that and a few other things, I, I was feeling, in a sense, like I was having a hard time seeing myself in my own life. Uh, I was waking up in the mornings feeling that I was sitting up into someone else's life and, and sort of madly scrambling to construct some kind of character who could operate in that context. So initially, I wanted to write a script that was about a character who may or may not be an imposter in their own life and use that as a way to, to talk about uh, how we how we construct characters and narratives just to, to sort of function as people. Um, honestly, the, the thriller sci-fi stuff kind of built out of there uh, uh-huh. as I was writing. The, the seed for the film is really in the, the, those quieter, dramatic uh, relationship and family scenes. Cool. That's that's so interesting because that that's honestly what um, spoke to me a lot more than a lot of the 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 stuff that is talked about, I guess, in in press right now is with the like the science fiction or the body horror, the mental horror of it all. It's actually Tasia's relationship with her with her family and with yeah. herself, and kind of this question of is she lying to herself and others, or is she who she says she is? That really like resonated with me. Oh well, I'm. I'm- I'm glad because that was definitely, in a sense, the most interesting part to me. I mean, I really love, obviously, the, the kind of pulpy stuff and the, oh, yeah. the horror thriller elements. But uh, to me, that stuff is more gratifying if it's paired with other ideas. Yeah. So what was it like working with Christopher Abbott and Andrea Riseborough? I mean, like, I can't even, their performances are absolutely stunning. So what was it like working with them behind the camera and directing them? It was great. I mean, the, the, the thing is, they're incredibly brilliant, and so they made me look very good and, and, and made my job very easy. It's funny, so a few people have phrased that question as, how did you get those great performances out of Chris and Andrea? And I, I chuckle internally because I, I didn't have to get anything out of them. I mean, they're, they're such great actors. They were really contributing in this, in this fantastic way, which is exactly what I hoped for. I mean, I, I was already completely in love with their work and, and I really wanted actors who would come and uh, in a sense bring the characters back to life for me in, in, a, yeah. in a new way especially because the development process was fairly long so mm. um, I, I liked having actors who were really going to inject some ideas in, in, into the roles oh sorry oh no no that's uh, sorry I was just going to keep continue to gush about them I think oh gosh continue so. <laughs> please do I was going to gush about Christopher Abbott so we can yes, just gush together I was gonna... <laughs> uh, please, please gush I've gushed about him so much I'm sure he'd like someone else to gush about him well I was just so impressed with how he's like playing a character who's playing a character and it's like this really awesome multi-level thing where he has to play him i don't know like i'm trying to think of how to explain it but he captures that so well of like being foreign in your own body yeah he, he, he does and the thing that like that really struck me watching this movie and his performance in particular was that um earlier this year i had watched piercing and he is so it's 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 a very like stereotypical masculine performance and seeing him kind of get more in touch with maybe a, a feminine side with this because of the the tasia connection but in him was was so interesting to watch he just he's really become kind of an actor that i've really grown to like watching acting completely i mean i mean He's totally fascinating, and, and they both are. And that's, yeah. you know, I sometimes get questions about how I go about casting and, and how uh, I chose them. 
but really it's it's the process for me is just fairly stupid and straightforward which is that <laughs> i see actors who have whatever that thing is that is absolutely enthralling about them you see them on screen and they're just making all the most interesting choices all the time it's so satisfying to watch them uh, chris and andrea are both actors like that for me yeah and mm-hmm. you just know yeah. when you get someone like that and you plug them into any role that they're going to do something great with it because there's no aspect of them as performers that is even remotely lazy it's it's always so interesting <laughs> and, and considered yeah and so like married with those amazing performances are these phenomenal practical effects especially the mind switching scene where they're melting into each other and <laughs> i just like wanted to talk about like where that vision came from and i know you probably worked with a really awesome special effects artist but like why did you want to show this in such an abstract yet kind of literal way like it's this really interesting abstract yet literal representation of switching minds I guess it was always a difficult question from the start because mm-hmm. so much of it is is internal. It's, you know, the struggle between the two of them internally. If you were doing it as a novel, it would be very easy, or I wouldn't say necessarily easy, but, I mean, you, you can write this in interior dialogue. Yeah. Um, film is such a visual medium, and it, it's sort of a waste to not treat it like a visual medium. I didn't want to do voiceover or, or anything like that. I, mm-hmm. you know, I felt it had to sit in a very visceral place for the audience and, and you needed to feel that struggle. So, you know, it was honestly a process of experimentation trying to find something mm. that would, in my mind, communicate that feeling. Kareem Hussein, my cinematographer, uh, who I, I met on Antiviral, but we've since become very close friends and, and we're actually living down the street from each other through much oh, wow. of uh, Possessor's development. Uh, he and I spent a huge amount of time experimenting with, with practical effects, with camera tricks uh, over the years of development. Uh, we made a couple of just, you know, low budget experimental music videos and, and we did a short film, uh, all of that to, to a certain degree with a view uh, towards building this bank of effects that we could then, then use on film. Cool. Um, and on the other side of it was Dan Martin, uh, our, our effects artist, our makeup effects artist, who is a- another mad genius. Uh, he, he and Kareem, <laughs> I, I sort of, it, maybe this is unfair to Dan, but um, thought of him when I met him as uh, being another Kareem, uh, which is, <laughs> in my mind, a huge compliment. He's also, they're both just encyclopedias of film knowledge. They're, they're so spectacular at what they do. And so Dan... Uh, built out these, you know, these melting torsos and and all these incredible fake heads, and uh, he's he is also just incredible at his at his job. Speaking of the fake heads, the the moment the moment the one moment of the film that actually made me gasp was such like a not necessarily like a gory moment, but when Colin is pressing into and breaking Tasia's face because it, it's so it's so seamless that like I was not expecting it to happen (laughs) (laughs) excellent (laughs) mission accomplished (laughs) and like part of me wants to know how you got that done the other part wants to like live in that kind of like (laughs) magical realm where because it felt so it felt so real and it was just like i said so a seamless mix of what i'm assuming is is camera tricks as well as um practical effects yeah i mean i could it's up to you whether you want me to i'm i'm nerdy (laughs) enough about it uh, that I will completely betray the magic and, and talk about it if you want. Or Please do. Betray the magic. <laughs> it's fine. We want to okay. know. <laughs> so it, it was, um, it almost worked perfectly as a jump cut between mm. Andrea actually lying there and then this sort of, uh, this fake collapsible head that Dan made. I, we, interestingly, we didn't shoot it 
to work that way. Mm. Um, I was assuming we would sort of go back and forth uh, because I wasn't planning to to use any effects to to fudge the seam. Mm. Just putting those two shots together, though, they lined up almost perfectly. And so it worked really well in the edit. We kind of like found that moment. Uh, There was a little bit of CGI touch up. Uh, I'll admit in that one, there isn't a lot of CGI in the film, but there was a a little bit of just sort of smoothing of those two shots. That's cool. I couldn't tell. So no, (laughs) (laughs) it's only it's actually the CGI is only a few frames to like. Oh wow, that's awesome. That's Um, so cool. Just happened to line up so beautifully as we were shooting. The other thing that like I I really that really kind of spoke to me, and I was kind of curious if I was reading too much into it or if this was like intentional. I. Everyone in this in this film seems to be interested in exerting control over someone else, even down to Tasia's son, Ira, with his uh, little puppet toy, all the way up to, you know, the data mining companies and the big shadowy corporation that Tasia works for. It almost as if, like, given the opportunity, we will try to exert our control on someone or something else. Is is Am I reading too much into it or is that kind of intentional? Uh- Partly yes and partly no. You're the first person to bring up uh, the son with the with the robot, and and that was definitely deliberate. That was that was meant to mirror the uh, the sort of possession, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, technology in a sort of small way. I wasn't looking at exertion of control as a as a kind of universal theme for the the film. If I'm being honest, um, mm-hmm. I was looking at possession partly as a way to again explore identity and then partly mm. as a way to uh i guess discuss it in a in a kind of more specific sense uh partly part okay <laughs> it, it was two it was two <laughs> things if, if we're looking at it in terms of social satire partly i was interested in the surveillance uh, element yeah. obviously mm-hmm. um which is kind of spelled out but the snowden leaks happened while i was writing and i was feeling uh, a lot of despair about the, okay. uh, the death of privacy through technology so you know, there, there are these sequences where they're data mining and, and, you know, looking through people's webcams, horrifically invading their privacy for the most yeah. mundane reason possible, just to see what kinds of curtains they bought in it. You know? <laughs> curtains pleated. <laughs> yeah. Like- <laughs> but, um, you know, the real, to me, the possessions themselves stand in for that kind of invasion because you mm-hmm. have, rather than someone turning on your camera or turning on your microphone, they're in your actual body looking out through your eyes and experiencing the most intimate details of your life uh, through your own nerve endings or equally horrifying through somebody close to you, you know, someone who right. y- you think is an intimate uh, partner, but is actually a, a full body organic surveillance camera. You know, it's, Ooh. that was a response to, I guess, my fears and frustrations with, with that level of, uh, with that loss of privacy. The other side of it though, is, uh, you know, I think, it's interesting. It, it's interesting on a lot of levels to me how we essentially construct these, uh, construct our sense of self as, as being these kind of unified, perpetual entities that have our own free will, despite the fact that we're completely not. You know, every human mm-hmm. being is yeah. a chorus of conflicted impulses and, and ideas, and uh, some of that we could. Some of that comes from our own brains in a sense. Some of it doesn't. I mean. To the point where there's a lot of interesting science about the ways that microorganisms in our digestive systems or parasites that we pick up can control our behavior. But I think in a more metaphorical sense, uh, I'm interested in 
psychological infections in a sense, ideas we pick mm. up from other people without knowing them. And right now that's especially relevant because of everything that's happening with uh, social yes. media. And, and <laughs> of course, yep. you know, the Russian influence over the U S elections and so mm. on. Oh, yeah. um, I, because we're operating in, in this social media landscape, we're all open. Uh, we're all in a sense, in a sense, hackable, uh, on a level that we never were before. And I think we're only just starting to see the repercussions of that. We're, we're in kind of a transition phase where I think human society is becoming something else. Uh, well, that's terrifying. Is <laughs> that is terrifying. That is terrifying <laughs> to contemplate. So we have talked about Processor, but Brandon, what movie did you bring with you to discuss today? So I brought Poltergeist. In the darkness of early morning in a new suburban home, Six-year-old Carol Ann will be the first to realize. And you will never look at your television set the same way again. Poltergeist. It knows what scares you. A Steven Spielberg production, rated PG. So, strange and creepy happenings are besting an average Californian family when ghosts begin to commune with their daughter through the TV. Initially playful, the spirits quickly turn menacing, kidnapping the daughter and forcing the parents to reckon with their version of the American dream. So, Brandon, how old were you when you saw this movie? I don't remember. I was okay. very, very young. I mean, I... Yeah. So, uh, you know, you asked me to, to talk about, I guess, the, the first time that I was scared. I'd like to give yeah. maybe a shout out to Michael Jackson's Thriller also. Ah, uh, uh, yes. I, I, have a, I have a very, very vague recollection of seeing that uh, in the early 80s. when I, I was born in 1980, so I was very young and it was on TV. That's the first time I can remember being scared by anything on screen was just that transformation sequence. That, at the yes, start. the werewolf transformation. Yeah, I have such a weird, <laughs> a weird kid's memory of it. When I go back to it, it's it's not what I remember at all. But that, <laughs> yeah. that's the first sort of sense of being scared by anything uh, that I saw on screen. Poltergeist. I was also very young. I, I wish I remember exactly what year it was. But basically, there was a family across the street from where I lived and I was friends with the daughter but she was a little bit older than I was mm-hmm. and that <laughs> their father I, I I guess delighted in sort of showing us scary movies that were <laughs> borderline not age appropriate um, <laughs> again I forget exactly what age maybe I was just a complete coward and, and that was the issue but I remember being like young and confused and, and like scared by something like he showed us Jaws and uh, and Poltergeist is the other one I remember. So that was. Oh my God. He put you through the horror ringer. Yeah, which, I mean, <laughs> I, I know I'm meant to love that and, and I wish I was a cooler kid, but I was so young at the time. <laughs> yeah. some, of, some of these, like, not terrifying films, you know, were terrifying as a, as a kid, I guess. Oh, yeah. Uh, at, that, at that age. So, so you saw it over at a friend's house. Do, do you remember any particular, like, scenes that, like, really tormented you or that were like, wow, what what am I watching? Yeah, funnily enough, and this is also ridiculous when I, <laughs> when I look back at it, um, the only scene that scared me was the tree coming in through the window. Oh, yeah. Okay, but, but that's valid. <laughs> <laughs> that's valid, but no, but it's funny because, okay, I, I have to admit to you, I haven't watched Poltergeist since then. Um, not oh because... my god, really? Oh, I was going to say, is it because it scared you so much? <laughs> no, 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 not because it was so terrifying, but just because I somehow never like got back. I don't know, it was just some dumb blind spot. And I rewatched it recently um, just for this for this 
podcast. And the thing that struck me is that it's not really a scary movie for the most part. Towards the end, it kind of becomes a a bit Mm -hmm. scary, but most Mm -hmm. of it's not very scary. Not, you know, it's not such a terrifying film, but it was none of the stuff at the end that got me. For some reason, it was just the tree coming in and grabbing the kid. Um, Maybe because I was a dorky kid and he was a dorky kid and I could imagine getting grabbed by a tree. I, don't know. I had a similar fear, though, because I had a bedroom. My bedroom was near a bunch of trees. And after I saw this movie at a, also an inappropriate age, I was I guarantee that the tree was going to punch through and take me out of the window. <laughs> I, like, I was terrified of that. Like, anyway, this movie also, like, ruined my childhood. But <laughs> oh, really? OK, so it's, <laughs> so it's oh, yeah, a it good just, one. To it destroyed about. me. But um, so what happened? Like, so how did the fear affect you after you watched the film? Like, did you have nightmares? Any funny stories about, like, your reaction to it? Well, th- I mean, this is embarrassing. Um, but again, you have to you have to understand, I was very, very young. I don't remember <laughs> how young, but I was very, very young. But I came out of it with this fear of, like, being bad to treat, like, angering trees. <gasps> oh so, my god, so I love it. Like, we had I this huge that. tree in the front of our house, and I remember just... I don't know, it was like trying to be nice to trees, sort of, or like some like some suspicion of trees that I could piss off these trees and they would come and get me, and so I wanted to like be on their side. <laughs> so how did you stay on their side? <laughs> I would like to know how you did that. I, you know what, I don't even, it's such a, it's it such a long time ago, I'm trying to remember yeah. practically what that was, was I like, you know, talking to the trees, was I sort of just like in my mind kind of, you know, was I looking at them in a sort of conspiratorial way and nodding and being like, don't worry, like I, when the revolution comes, I'm on your side. Or like, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't even really know. I just have this sense of like not wanting to anger trees, right. but it was such a long time ago that I know that doesn't totally make sense. No, it's no. That's just like the best reaction I've ever heard to Poltergeist. Everyone always <laughs> talks about like the ghost coming out of the closet and the guy's face melting off, but and the clown doll, but the tree and the fear of trees. I love that. I respect that deeply. <laughs> it's so funny. I don't even remember the other stuff. I don't, I don't think it was due to trauma. It was just the tree is what got me for some reason. <laughs> it was due to trauma, but the tree was the one that caused the trauma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was so busy with the tree trauma that the other stuff just bounced off me. Okay. <laughs> Honestly, I do think the tree is probably the thing that's like held up the most for me because like it, it's it's so terrifying to see this kid like basically being devoured by this tree and it's it's there's goopiness involved and it looks it's so dark and it's so wet that it looks like maybe there's like blood involved. So like there's like it's it's kind of I, I think it's one of the effects that's really held up over the years and it it got me too as a kid. I remember I remember learning to count down from thunderstorms, but also being afraid of counting down from thunderstorms. <laughs> mm, because, yes. like, he's counting down and all of a sudden it's getting closer and closer and then the tree bursts through. Yes. So, like, I can completely understand, especially if you're really young, how this, how that scene could paint the biggest picture. Also, Poltergeist, I did not remember that this scene was in it when I saw it as a kid because I think it scared me so much that I placed it in another movie. I like really? was like, no, the tree did not happen in Poltergeist because Poltergeist, I watched it too young and I was just horrified. of I was horrified of ghosts coming out of my closet. I'm still scared of closets a little bit to this day because of Poltergeist. It's a whole thing. But um, <laughs> basically, I think the movie had so many terrifying elements to me that I think my brain removed the tree from it so I could process the rest of the movie, I think. I don't know. That- my My young brain... 
was doing some mental gymnastics, I think. Well, for sure. I mean, that's the thing. When you look back at yourself, it's like being nice to trees. I don't even, and not even knowing what that means. It's just like at that age, your brain is doing all this weird stuff that then yeah. I, I think mutates over the years as you look back. Which, which movie did you put it in? Um, an unnamed movie that was just about trees attacking children. Like it wasn't <laughs> right. like it wasn't even like an actual movie. It was like I just placed it in another out of that film. Like you I don't know why. Compartmentalize that. And I just did put it over because here. I, when I rewatched it, I was like, oh my god, the tree is. This happens in Poltergeist because so much happens in Poltergeist that it's just like I forgot how many things happened because I removed a lot of them to to help my young brain. I don't know why I did it, but that's how that's how my brain decided to process Poltergeist at the like young age of seven or eight. I mean, there is a lot that goes on. Looking back at it, it is just like a ton of stuff happens pretty pretty quickly. Yeah. Just what did you think happening. of What did you think of rewatching it? Like, what did it? You know, did it did it kind of scare you? Is probably the wrong word, but like, what are re- what were your reactions to watching it now as a grown up? Basically, I found it to be a very very weird film. Like, mm, <laughs> it's, it's okay, really yeah. Watching it now, very strange, and I mean, kind of endearingly strange and then surreal. So I, I kind of appreciated it that way. But I can see, you know. I, I know it was a successful film. I feel like it's, it kind of feels a bit more like a weird cult film now. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the things that since we've been doing this podcast, we've seen a lot of movies from, from the 80s because apparently that was like the decade of kinder trauma. So the the thing that like has really kind of jumped out at me over the last year that we've been doing this is American the American dream in the 80s films and how like – Everyone is moving into suburbia, and yet the movies were still taking the idea of suburbia and the idea of the American dream and just basically tearing it apart. Um, cause I, I, I really, what I really appreciated watching it this last time is, is in particular how the ghosts basically turn all of their possession, possessions against them. You know, there's the old wise tree that, that the father is talking about, you know, it's been here for so long. It's here to protect us. And it turns against them. The toys, Robbie's room is filled with like alien. There's an alien poster. I noticed this time there's like Star Wars posters. There's a Darth Vader poster. There's like all of this like merchandise and, and that kind of capitalism from like the eighties that eventually turns on Robbie and the pool turns into like a mass grave and the TV is communicating them from the beyond. Like all of these like, things that are like cornerstones of what people wanted are ultimately attacking them that is interesting and what do you along those lines what do you think now about how that kind of 80s suburban retro thing fits into that history because it seems like there's a, a big move, a big nostalgia now with you know, Stranger Things and all these sort of yeah. 80s yeah. Uh, it. pseudo Spielberg throwback. Yeah, and that's interesting because I think in watching, you know, we've like Terry said, we've watched a lot of these '80s suburbia movies, and Poltergeist follows that sort of pattern, but is also super upsetting. Like it's much sadder and much more nihilistic, I think, than other suburban '80s movies because at the end, like there isn't really a solution. Like, yeah, they stopped it, but they don't have a home. And so like the, uh, that American dream from the eighties is completely destroyed and they're kind of left with nothing. And I, that links to me to the dis- discussion of Ronald Reagan, because at the beginning of the film, Craig T. Nelson is reading a book about Ronald Reagan. Yeah, and so, while smoking weed, while smoking I mean, weed, like, dichotomy, like, the right? best. And so right. 
it's this really interesting tension, I think, between like this suburban American dream that Ronald Reagan was like pumping and the hyper masculine hard body and like this is what we need. And it kind of feels like that's a little bit happening now. I mean, like our president in the United States is terrible and like it seems to be creating this weird mythos around what it means to be an American, which is completely untrue. But I think this kind of suburban throwback is almost a way to maybe process all of this weirdness around. I mean, like speaking of possessor, but identity and how we form our, how we're supposed to form our identities around this like completely fake idea of the American dream and like completely, and it's completely driven by a capitalistic desire. Well, for sure. And I mean, interesting that you bring that up obviously in the context of modern politics, because Trump keeps uh, mentioning suburbs and like the end of the suburbs. Mm-hmm. And there's this whole discussion about the end of the suburbs as though that is American life. I mean, is that, you know, I, I don't live there and I'm sure there are suburbs um, <laughs> that, that I'm not seeing, but is, it feels like maybe in the eighties or, or in the fifties, the suburban America was the ideal, but does anyone really think that anymore? I mean, is, is that the inherent image, the, the, the sort of, essential image of America anymore. It doesn't seem to be from the outside. I don't think it is, but like, it's still interesting because my aunt, um, who's only nine years older than me, like lived in the city in Philadelphia. And then when she had kids, she came to the, the suburbs, like, and I think with the suburbs, you know, it's not just at, like the big house. I also think, think they were thinking about kids and they were thinking about like expanding but i also think that that like having children and getting married isn't as emphasized as it used to be i think that kind of call to like domesticity is not as important now so i think a lot of people like a lot of people i know like we live in the city and don't want to leave the city like the city is the best place to be so i think there is still like that kind of remaining call to the suburbs but it's being diminished by a lack of wanting to conform to that like domestic life like mom, dad, three kids, pool in the backyard, and a golden retriever. And do you think that because of that, people are maybe more inclined to uh, treat them, treat the suburbs in in films and in television as this kind of, uh, you know, nostalgic alternate universe rather than a, an ideal that, that has to be addressed and, and maybe combated in the way that a film like Poltergeist does? I, I, I do. Um, I, it's, it's so weird because, um, last week we talked about Gremlins, which is also another movie that is about kind of this suburban, very like white town that ends up being like, you know, infiltrated by these, these gremlins. And it's such a, I, watching that and then watching this with the, it, it very, the poltergeist really definitely has like, a perspective because when it's first introducing suburbia, you know, it's, it's showing every single house looks exactly the same. Everything is so cookie cutter. Everything is just, and even like one of my favorite shots in the, in the film is after the chairs move in the, the kitchen and it's a shot of that kitchen. And then it immediately transitions to a kitchen that, that, uh, Mr. Freeling, that Steve is, is selling someone. And it's the same exact mm, kitchen minus, yeah. minus the like dinner table. Mm-hmm. And it's this like idea of like, yeah, you have given up the diversity of city life for this, this idealized heaven, this idealized American dream aspect, but it's the same as everyone else's. For sure. And, and there's also, of course, the, 
the fact that they're building this on bodies it's this sort of yes. obliteration of history and and death and i feel like that i feel like there was a trend for a while toward having things built on graveyards and things built on <laughs> there were <laughs> you, you, know, you know this sort of like sanitizing of the past in, in the yeah. name of, of progress that then fails because the past comes back for it well, and even like the the land developer, Mister T, like he's when when he when they T, yeah, I think it's T. When when uh, Steve finds out that they just moved the headstones of like the previous or their their future plot, he's like, "Well, at least it's not an Indian burial ground." Like that is his quote. Like, <laughs> so it's like I'm like <laughs> I'm like okay, so you're you're definitely like interacting with this idea of of burying over the past, but. Is this any better? Because you have just literally moved the headstones of these poor people that you're erasing, like you said, erasing that that history. And the, 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 were there so, so weird. many Indian burial ground movies that the, uh, it sounds like yes, they were are. writing it and they were just like, "Hey, could be an Indian burial ground." And I was like, "No, no, no, it's always an Indian burial ground." Okay, well, at least this isn't an Indian burial ground. Exactly. Progress. Well, and that's so funny because this so. In the suburb I lived in growing up, I babysat a, a, a family of kids who lived next door to someone who had a fucking cemetery in their front yard. And it was like a what? mini cemetery. Really? It was like a family. And it was gravestones of the family. But I always thought of poltergeist, even into high school, when I would leave their house and take the shortcut through the backyard and walk past the graves, I would avoid the graves and not walk over them because I was terrified that I was going to, like, wake them up and make them upset. So Poltergeist made me, like, absolutely terrified of any of that, and I just could not understand how anyone could live in a house with the graveyard in their front yard. But That's really interesting. And I'm also glad that Poltergeist got you so much because I'm less embarrassed about it now. Oh, yeah. No, I was going to say, like, don't be embarrassed because Poltergeist, like, just absolutely wrecked my entire... (laughs) Like, everything about it. It just steeped into my bones and now i love horror movies so i guess it has something to do with it so you saw poltergeist at a young age you said you also saw jaws so like how did was horror like for you as a young person do you think it kind of helped shape what you are doing today with possessor and antiviral like what other movies really influenced you as a kid i don't know honestly (laughs) fair enough fair enough fair enough i I don't know how to because i i wasn't I, i know a lot of people First of all, in film, we're, we're very serious cinephiles from a very young age. And also, mm-hmm. it's interesting getting into horror, um, the, the horror communities, which is, of course, absolutely wonderful. And, and I feel more connected to these days because I know so many who are, who are people who are active parts of it. And a lot of people grew up specifically with horror and, and being horror fans. And, and that informed later choices to get into filmmaking and to to make horror movies. I didn't really have that. I mean, I saw horror mm. movies, of course, and, you know, whatever, sleepovers with friends, you know, yeah. watch mm-hmm. horror movies. I, I did all that stuff, but I, I wasn't specifically a, a horror fan in, in that cool in that basic way from the start. I kind of, I mean, I liked a variety of things. I also wasn't a huge cinephile right from the start. I, I always cool. I've watched movies, but I was more nerdy about books, to be honest, and cool. came, uh, came to film in this sort of roundabout way. But I love that, though, because I feel like it's cool to hear about people who didn't grow up with horror, because I feel like it is so much more interesting to me sometimes to be like, oh, so like you weren't you didn't grow up with this. And it's just really fascinating to hear like you came to it later. So what kind of did you what kind of um, films did you watch as a kid? Like, what were your favorite kind of movies to watch? I mean, honestly, what again, I forget when I was very young, I had a 
like a Betamax tape with a bunch of oh, movies yeah. on it that I would watch over and over again. Hell yeah. The one that stands out was the Batman movie, like the Adam West. Yeah. Um, Very good. Batman. I, I watched that quite a bit. Some like early Disney movies. and stuff. I mean, I was quite young. So like Pinocchio and, and some of those, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. those early cartoons. Again, it's not that I didn't see horror, horror films, but I wasn't like a, I don't know. I wasn't a, especially drawn to them more than anything else in the, yeah. in the way that some people are just I, I, for whatever reason. That's fair. I am so glad that you talked about a Betamax because I, I, you and I are about the same age. Um, I was born in 81 and I, I have fond memories of my Betamax and <laughs> everyone's like, everyone we talk to, if they were of age for it, they always talk about the VHS, but like, I'm like, man, the Betamax, that was it. <laughs> Beta was the better technology. You know? It the, was. The higher quality technology lost out, and, and we all suffered for it. It's true. It was also a smaller <laughs> tape. You could have more of them on the shelf. You could. Oh. I loved my Betamax collection. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I'm old. I'm a baby, um, and I, I am a child, and I only know about Betamax tapes from a video archive I worked in. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrifying. It's, I mean, it's not I'm terrifying. It's, it's a totally obscure, <laughs> useless technology, but it, it, you know, it's terrifying to uh, grow old. Essentially, I mean, yeah, you know, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing that really, like, that still, t- that for some reason, watching it this time really brought me back to being a kid, though, was the clown, Ugh. the clown attack, mm-hmm. because I, it, for some reason, it, this this watch of it reminded me of, and I don't know if you ever knew these toys, Brandon, but my pet monster. Oh yeah, I from the eighties. Did you do you know about them, Mary Beth? No. My pet monster. He's bigger than big. When he fights battles, he always wins. And he's your friend too. He breaks his chains. Put him on you and break away too. With my pet monster, you're busting loose. He's big and scary. <laughs> and helps people too. And he's your friend too. My pet monster plays all day. Tough. Awesome. Looking great. And all your friends will want him for their friend too. My pet monster has breakaway chains from Amtoy and American Greetings Company. Do you remember? The, do you remember the cartoon and the song? I do. Yeah, yeah. I love the cartoon. I watch the cartoon so much. But like, I had a my pet monster doll. And the the idea behind them, Mary Beth, is that they're like this this monster. It was blue fur, and he had these like yellow orange handcuffs what? that could be broken. And the idea was that he was a monster, but if he wore these handcuffs he would be a stuffed animal and that's what like the the cartoon was based on it was like how the kid hid the fact that he was like a monster from his parents or the 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 villains was that you put the handcuffs on him and he'd be just a little stuffed animal and i had one of those and i for some reason i don't know why this just hit me this time but i remember having one of those dolls and i would put him in the closet at night because i didn't want him coming alive and strangle (laughs) me like the, the the clown does Wow. I think that's that's fair. My pet. I forgot about the handcuffs. That is, yeah. The handcuffs. That's quite a choice. It's a very interesting uh, aesthetic and choice. <laughs> right? It made sense at the time, though. I, I, it, I, he was sort of like the good monster, and then who was the yeah. bad one? Like Beastor or something. Is he like, oh, do- is it like a Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde situation with this little with this little dude? No, I think, I think he, he was friendly. Yeah, he was friendly, and he would become a friendly living monster if I remember correctly. I'd probably oh. need to watch. The- but like he was, Wait, like, he was. That's what my pet mom. Okay, this is this is like. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. I'm so sorry. This is like going off the fucking rails. So <laughs> that I just googled it, and I just got hit in the face with this memory that there was a my pet monster in my grandparents' basement, and my 
fucking my fucking uncle told me that it was a real monster and I couldn't come to the basement where he slept because that monster would get me because I used to jump on him and try to wake him up in the morning when he and he was like in high school and I was like five or four or five and I thought that monster was going to get me and I swear to god it was a my pet monster oh my yeah, god that's hilarious wow. tell me it wasn't like passed down from your grandparents and were that old no, 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 no. It was my, it was my uncle. It was my uncle. Um, I'm 27. I'm not too, too much of a baby, but I'm still a baby. She's but, lying. She's like 10. Oh, shut up. <laughs> but um, yeah. Wow. This is podcast has brought back a deluge of memories that terrified me of the creepy thing in the closet, and it was a my pet monster. And they never explained that he was friendly. He was on your side. He was. No. Oh no. But it was like, very, I'll tell it, you what. At midnight, when you've watched Poltergeist. You do not see him that way. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember like just opening the closet door and always getting scared and always like creeping around the basement, like ready for him to jump out. And I used to like practice jumping down the stairs, go down really quick and run and then come back up. So, wow. Huh. (laughs) And he was friendly all along. Thanks, Poltergeist. Thanks. He was. (laughs) Um, So do we want to give this movie a rating out of five? Yeah. Okay, Terry, how many melting faces out of five do you give Poltergeist? Uh, you know, I think ob- obviously this movie has a lot of like nostalgia for me. It was one of my favorites growing up as a kid. So like it's really hard for me to look at it in, in, in any other terms. But I, I do think that even though some of the like the, the face melting effect hasn't <laughs> completely aged very well, I do think that it's a surprisingly subversive film for a movie that was that has Steven Spielberg's name attached to it in yeah. the 80s. Um I I think I really do think I mean there's there's always like talks of who really directed it. I don't really care, but I do think to- Toby Hooper brought a lot of his very kind of dark satire to it even though um it definitely has like that kind of um nostalgic feel to it. I do think that there is an edge to it that I I appreciate as as one of the the 80s. Yeah. Um kids more kid-friendly horror movies. So I think I would give it probably... I, I think I'd probably give it a four dissolving faces okay. out of five. Okay. What about you, Mary Beth? I want to give it four and a half dissolving faces out of five, which I think is higher than my previous rating, because the more I think about Poltergeist, besides now the fact that this whole monster has now become <laughs> a part of my childhood narrative, I did not really appreciate how nihilistic this movie is comparatively speaking to other 80s horror. And I think I really appreciate... Like you said, with Toby Hooper adding this, like darkness to it and i really appreciate that subversive darkness while also balancing it with that steven spielberg name and i think it's just in that context it's such a fascinating movie and it's just kind of soul crushing in a way that i really enjoy um something's wrong with me it's fine um (laughs) so that's my score brandon you have the final word what is your rating on poltergeist how many melting faces dissolving faces out of five do you give this movie i don't know you know what I, I, I feel like I need to abstain. Oh, no! <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like I'm going to lose my filmmaker card if I rate another filmmaker's work on a scale, on a one to five gotcha. scale. I'm just with you. Give it an um, arbitrary number. Come but, on, Brandon. <laughs> Let's okay. go. I'll, 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 I'll give it the, I'll give it the average, <laughs> the, the, you know, 4.25 cool. between the two of you. Um, but, you know, honestly, actually, you know, I even, I would say I did enjoy it quite a bit and, and more actually discussing it with you guys. I, I think I think you're right. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Brandon, for joining us to talk about Poltergeist and your movie Possessor. Where can our listeners find you and do you have any and what do you have coming up you'd like to share? Um, 
no one can find me. Um, <laughs> I try not to be found, um, but I'm sure it's it's possible to stumble on me somewhere. Um, I have two other films in the works. One is called Infinity Pool, which is a, a kind of tourist resort satire with some sci-fi horror elements, and then a trippy space horror movie called Dragon. Um, both of them are pretty far in development and I, I would love to sort of make them back to back. I guess it's a little pandemic dependent yeah. right now, but uh, hopefully I'll be able to talk Trippy about space awesome. movie. Yes, please. Um, <laughs> that's yeah, exactly. That's my encouragement. That'll mean a lot to uh, distributors. I know. Um, so listeners, you've heard from us, but we want to hear from you. What was your experience with Poltergeist? You can send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com or reach out to us directly on Twitter. I'm at MB McAndrews. And I'm at Gailey Dreadful. And of course, keep the conversation going by chatting with the podcast on Twitter at Scarred Podcast. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. Thank you to Steve Bronald for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thanks to everyone for listening. Stay safe out there. But most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.